and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of comics publishing. You can hear us every other week on the WeirdScienceDC.com podcast feed. We come in Sunday morning, a few hours before the regular podcast, and that can be found on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and transmissions from The Traveler. Mm-hmm. And that might give some people a hint of the book we're doing today. Uh, which book is it there, Chris? Well, this is a special request by uh, Cold Frosty, who we know as Christian Falds on uh, on Reddit, and we are discussing the Spectacular Spider-Man number two hundred twenty-six from uh, July of nineteen ninety-five. This is part of the Clone Saga, and uh, he requested we discuss it because there is a uh, a lot of clone stuff in the works right now uh, mm-hmm. in contemporary Marvel. Yep. Now, this issue is called The Trial of Peter Parker, Part 4, The Final Verdict. And knowing us like you do now, we're probably not going to just be discussing Part 4. No. Uh, (laughs) But the issue in question is written by Tom DeFalco, penciled by Sal Buscema, inked by Bill Sienkiewicz, and inked is, uh, I think, with a sponge. Uh, (laughs) What I said, like a Q-tip, right? I was like, what the heck is going on here? Uh, Colors by John Kalish, and uh, cover by... uh, same bunch of guys. Yep. Minus DeFalco. That's true. Um, yeah. You didn't have to write anything <laughs> there, I don't think. Is uh, John Kalish, is he, I wonder if he's related to uh, Carol Kalish. Maybe. The, uh, the one who was in charge of marketing, who brought the uh, cash registers into the stores. I would be surprised if he wasn't, frankly. I yes. mean, it's pretty, <laughs> the, the world of comics is pretty incestuous. So, yeah, it I, is I would guess. I would guess. Now, there are a lot of creators attached to the Clone Saga, and the saga is quite a bear itself. Uh, Luckily, the writer of this particular issue also figures into the overall story of the saga. So we'll do regular bios for the issue and the name of the creators when we we get to them. (laughs) We've got Tom DeFalco. Born June 26, 1950 in Queens, New York City. Uh, After graduating Lemoyne College in Syracuse, he got a job as an editorial assistant at Archie Comics. That would be uh, 1972. Uh, He initiated and developed the Archie Digest edition, which is still produced, still very profitable. Uh, Probably some of the only comics you're going to find, like, in a Walmart and a Target. Sure, yeah, in the supermarket. And for for a lot of us, uh, or a lot of people, this is your first comics, if you... Yep. And maybe your only comic. Some people, (laughs) that's it. (laughs) They go here and never, never go further. Um, he soon uh, began writing Archie as well as uh, Scooby-Doo and Josie and the Pussycats. Uh, after briefly doing some writing for DC, DeFalco would join Marvel in 1978. Uh, he wrote a couple of issues of the Avengers. Uh, he also wrote the last issue of Machine Man plus a Marvel team-up featuring Machine Man, which was uh, issue number 99, cover date November 1980. Uh, he helped develop the backstories of Hasbro's relaunched G.I. Joe toy series in 1980. Uh, he also brought the property to Marvel in 1983, and he would edit the first six issues. Uh, similar, another Hasbro product, he uh, 
did the same thing with Transformers in 1984. Yeah, I guess he had the in, basically, so he was the guy. Yeah, was, this is before I got the Hasbro, so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, you would have played a big part in that, I'm I, sure. I would have been, I'd be given my own bio here. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, he would launch uh, the Dazzler ongoing series in 1981, which is that disco roller skating mutant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I still remember the last issue. On, on the very top of the last issue, it said, because you demanded it, the final issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> it was excellent. Um, in August 1983, he would uh, step down as Spider-Man editor to, be, to become a writer on the uh, flagship title Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, he first shared duties with Roger Stern on issues number 251 and 252, which were April and May, respectively. Uh, they were the Secret Wars-related issues. Uh, 252 is the first appearance of the black suit yeah. uh, in in the in action there. Uh, he took over by himself with 253, and he enjoyed a two-year run, most with uh, Ron Friends on art. Uh, the Falco and Friends were both removed from The Amazing Spider-Man by then-spider-editor Jim Owsley, who we know better these days as Christopher Priest. Uh, he stated that uh, they had chronically failed to meet deadlines. I hear a lot of weird stuff about the Owsley uh, editorial regime. Yeah, I, and even even when reading about this, there was some discrepancy over whether this was. I mean, even I talk about a little. You know, we can talk about a little bit here, but uh, it was. You know, different people say different things about this yeah. regime. I know Peter David was part of this as well. He was doing some work on Spectacular at the time. Hmm. Um, and uh, he even did an issue of Amazing, too, which was a lot of fun. Uh, now, DeFalco and Friends state that they uh, both met their deadlines more digital, more diligently than any other Marvel creative team at the time, and that Owsley caused them to miss deadlines by repeatedly changing <laughs> the production schedule, hmm. which, you know, that would not be something fun to work with. No. Uh, their final issue would be uh, the February 1987 cover dated Amazing Spider-Man number 285. <laughs> Yeah, and then Owsley assumed writing duties after this, which seems to be a running theme here. It's just <laughs> to step down from editor and become the writer or whatever. Uh, while writing Amazing Spider-Man, Tom DeFalco continued editing other comic books, though. He co-wrote a couple of issues of Fantastic Four with Roger Stern and then took over Thor after Walt Simonson left the title, which I guess would have been around 1985 or 6, I would think. Yeah. Uh, DeFalco became Marvel's 10th editor-in-chief on April 15, 1987. This was after Jim Shooter was removed by management, which we've touched on before and... Uh, probably warrants an episode, as we've said, about Jim Shooter. Um, and early in DeFalco's run as editor-in-chief, executive editor Mark Gruenwald remarked, Tom does not seem to have as strong a personal vision for Marvel as Shooter, and as a result, he's more open to other people's visions. It remains to be seen if that's good or bad, and it will remain to be seen in this very episode of the <laughs> Cosmic Treadmill. Uh, DeFalco was a key member of the management team that took both that took Marvel public, and under his leadership, Marvel's net profits from publishing rose by over 500 percent. That made him very popular for a very short time. I have a feeling. <laughs> uh, under DeFalco's guidance, Marvel entered a phase of expansion that provided an opportunity for new talent to enter the comic book industry and released a number of new titles with original characters. This would be the, a lot of the fellows that we would associate with Image uh, came in during this time um, and shook things up quite a bit. Tom DeFalco would continue to write comics while editor-in-chief, including on Thor and the Fantastic Four. And DeFalco was one of the writers on the Maximum Carnage storyline happening in Spider-Man comics in 1993. But we won't hold that against him. 
Mm. After clashing with the company's upper management, DeFalco was forced out in 1994. Uh, his dismissal from, from the position of editor-in-chief coincided with a run on the spectacular Spider-Man, numbers 215 to 229, August 94 to October 95, and brings us to this very issue of spectacular Spider-Man that we'll be talking about. Yep. Uh, we got the artist here, uh, Sal Buscema. Silvio Buscema, born on uh, January 26, 1936, in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, he's the youngest of four. His uh, father is an Italian gentleman who was a barber. Uh, he credits his brother John, John Buscema, another uh, big-time Marvel artist. Yeah, arguably uh, much more, much better known. In fact, I would say inarguably much better known. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, at least by the uh, the uh, original generation of uh, Marvel. Absolutely, um, yeah. Now, uh, he, he credits John for pushing him to uh, pursue drawing. Sal would attend the High School of Music and Art, graduated in 1955. Uh, he began inking his brother John's drawings, uh, doing uh, backgrounds on some of his uh, brother's work for uh, Dell Comics. Uh, he drew for a couple of commercial agencies and held odd jobs after high school. He was uh, drafted into the peacetime U.S. Army in 1956. Weird, right? He would, drafted uh, into yeah. the peacetime army. Peacetime. Wow. Yeah, All just right. in case. Yep. We want the pieces in place here. <laughs> oh, it was the mid-50s. You know, we didn't know, we didn't know uh, if the East was coming. Absolutely. Uh, and this wasn't long after the Korean War, which ended in a stalemate. So it was yeah. still hot. Yeah. Sure. Now, uh, he would serve in the Army, course, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers stationed in Fort Belvoir in Virginia. He uh, classified as an illustrator. He spent 21 months doing film strips and shots as training aides before being discharged after two years. Uh, he briefly returned to New York in another ad agency. Then an Army connection found him uh, work at the large creative arts studio in Washington, D.C. Uh, while he was there, he did illustrations for government agencies, including the, the DOA, the Department of Agriculture, and the Department of Defense. <laughs> <laughs> DOA, that's a that's a part of the slang. Huh? That what you call it on the inside? <laughs> Dead on arrival. Yep. Uh, he started dating a, a woman named Joan, who was a secretary where he worked uh, in February 1959, and the pair were married in May of 1960. So not a very long courtship. No. Uh, they would go on to have three children. Uh, a call from John brought Sal back to New York to work with him at the advertising agency Alexander Chait Incorporated, and that would be in 1961. Yep, right in the core of the Mad Men time. So working for ad agencies was the way to do, I think, if you were a illustrator or anybody that liked a lot of money and smoking cigarettes. Yes. After a year and a half, John went back to comic books, and Sal joined a friend and colleague from creative art studio, Mel Earned, who was opening his own company, Design Studio. Sal stayed there until 1968 when he began working for Marvel Comics, where John was already established as a freelance artist. Sal trained every night for a year and a half to learn the, the dynamic Marvel comic storytelling style, and he was harshly criticized by John the entire time. Attaboy. That's the way to learn. Uh, Sal was urged by his brother to contact Marvel production manager Saul Brodsky to, for work. Though he had nothing for him, he did arrange an interview with Stan Lee. In 2000, Sal recalled, once I got the hang of it, I made up six sample page pages of pencils, example, penciled uninked art pages, which I regret because I wanted to be an inker. I didn't want a pencil. My first few jobs for Marvel were inking jobs, but I did those while working for a design center. I wanted to work full-time for Marvel, so it was out of necessity that I penciled. Editor-in-chief Stanley loved the samples. He asked me to come, up, uh, come on up to New York, which I did. 
and I went through the most fantastic interview of my life. Stan was leaping on his chair and his desk just to relate to me physically what he wanted on the comic book page. It was fascinating and it was charming all at the same time. He made the sound effects the whole nine yards. He demonstrated every other way you could possibly demonstrate what he wanted on those pages, the dynamics, and so on. Finally got his first job in June 1968, and that job was a 10-page Western feature, The Coming of Gunhawk, written by Jerry Siegel, penciled by Werner Roth. This eventually appeared in the omnibus Western Gunfighters No. 1, August 1970. But his first published work was inking his brother's John's pencils on the Silver Surfer No. 4 through 7. That was February to August 1969. Uh, at the time, this was a high-profile project dear to writer-editor Lee, Stanley, that is, who gave the character an unprecedented, for the time, double-sized 64-page with ads and covers solo series, priced at 25 cents, more than twice the price of the standard 32-page 12-cent comic. Sal recalled, Joe Sinnott inked the first three Silver Surfer issues. John was not happy with the inking Joe was doing on that. Joe is one of the greatest inkers of all time, but he did not ink John well because Joe's style of inking was somewhat overpowering, and at the end, it didn't look like John Buscema anymore. John did not like that because he was knocking himself out on this character because this was a very important project that Stan had come up with. John told Stan, I don't want Joe inking my work. He's losing my penciling. Stan was very reluctant, but he said, okay, who do you want? He said, I want my brother, and that's how I got it. He knew that I, he, he knew that I knew how to ink his work, because he's been doing it since the 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a little spotty on, the fir- on my first issue, but after that, he was absolutely delighted with what I did. And within a year, Sal Buscema was a regular penciler on The Avengers, and for 30 years, he would be one of Marvel's most prominent artists. So here's, here's a partial list of the books he worked on, since you know that could be hours in itself if we went through every <laughs> little thing he did. He worked on The Uncanny X-Men, The Incredible Hulk, The Submariner, Daredevil, Iron Man, Conan the Barbarian, Captain America, The Defenders, Thor, and Fantastic Four. Only fellow really missing from this is Spider-Man. Yeah. And maybe Doctor Strange. Uh, but he did do many more than that. Uh, pretty much the core Marvel roster, except for, like I said, The Spectacular Spider-Man, for which he was the debut artist in December 1976. Yeah, from uh, 1988 through 1996, he penciled and mostly inked a uh, 100-issue run on Spectacular Spider-Man. This included such story arcs as the Loba Brothers Gang War with uh, Jerry Conway and The Child Within, written by uh, (laughs) J.M. DiMatteis. Hey, he only penciled it. (laughs) Yes, and uh, and actually his pencils there are some of my favorite parts of that story because there was a real feeling of like— be, like loneliness in huh. the pencils there. It was a uh, very desolate. Uh, it worked out very well for the story they were telling, which was the death of longtime Spider-Man supporting character Harry Osborn. And that was in issue number 200. Nice uh, hollow graphics cover. <laughs> and uh, it was May 1993, and uh, Harry had taken up the mantle of uh, the Green Goblin. I almost said Green Lantern, <laughs> uh, which is another story which would have been pretty fun to read. Yeah. Uh, in 2002, DiMatteis De- said, I really loved the two years on Spectacular Spider-Man I wrote with Sal Buscema drawing. Talk about underrated. Sal is one of the best storytellers and a wonderful collaborator. I loved that run. Which brings us neatly to the uh, matter at hand, which is The Clone Saga. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> now, before we get into the 
I was going to say contemporary, but it's not anymore. Before we get into this clone saga, busted uh, old man. <laughs> we're going to discuss a little bit the uh, the origins of this story, which we go all the way back to Amazing Spider-Man number one hundred twenty-two uh, from July nineteen seventy-three, wherein it featured the death of uh, Gwen Stacy. This was written by uh, Jerry Conway with uh, pencils by Gil Kane. And uh, Peter's girlfriend at the time, Gwen Stacy, dies due to the uh, Green Goblin hurling her off a bridge or by Spider-Man snapping her neck by trying to save her from yeah. falling off a bridge. One of the two. Uh, hey, she would have yeah. died anyway, though, right? Theoretically. She was dead either way, so. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, either way, gone. Yeah. Um, now, a couple of years later, in Amazing Spider-Man number 144, May 1975, uh, written by Jerry Conway with uh, art by Ross Andrew, it ends with a cliffhanger. Gwen Stacy is somehow waiting for Peter in his apartment. Hmm. Whoa. Now, a fella named the Jackal reveals that the new Gwen Stacy is a clone. And uh, and he's actually uh, Miles Warren, who was uh, Peter and Gwen's biology professor at Empire State University. Uh, a couple issues later, in Amazing Spider-Man number 149 from October of 75, same creative team, the Jackal flips out and unleashes a Spider-Man clone that also ties Ned Leeds to a time bomb, which is a pretty crazy story. Yeah, it really was. I was like, <laughs> what, a, the, what the stupidest like schemes a villain could come up with? That didn't really make any sense, but okay. And he could have saved us a lot of hobgoblin mystery later on. <laughs> <laughs> the Spider-Man clone and Spider-Man fight each other at first, but then, as they do in Marvel Comics, they start working together. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Gwen reels it disgust at the, in disgust at the Jackal's cravenness, because he was a creep, mm-hmm. uh, he snaps out of it and realizes that he's actually Miles Warren. He saves Ned Leeds and somehow pl- blows up part of Shea Stadium in the process, uh, killing him and one of the Spider-Men. Hmm, which one? Don't know. The surviving one surmises that he must be the original deal because he loves Mary Jane, something that happened after Professor Warren harvested his DNA. So that is to say he had grown past where right. his clone bits were taken from. Yeah, that, that uh, was the idea. Yeah. And uh, the body of the clone was stuffed into a smokestack, <laughs> like you do. I know. It's so weird. Why? <laughs> you never know. There's not going to be any smell. Uh, <laughs> now, Gwen Stacy's clone sort of takes off. Uh, she kind of starts like a civilian life. Uh, she goes away. She reappears a few times over the years. Um, we also have an imperfect clone of Miles Warren named Carrion. He shows up, and at some point it turns out that uh, Warren's clones weren't clones at all, but people infected, infected with a virus that turned them into clones of other people. And we're just getting started. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember people thinking or reading that people thought, because I was too young for this, people thought that Carrion was uh, Norman Osborn yeah. as, uh, as a tattered shell of himself. Um, now, right about here, it's a good time to mention that Peter Parker's saga ran weekly through four books we got here spider-man without the adjective this is the todd mcfarlane started one mm-hmm. uh web of spider-man which kind of took over for marvel team up when marvel team up was canceled web of spider-man took its spot on the publication uh schedule and wasn't web of spider-man originally prequel stories or did i am i no that okay. was uh that's a fiction you know, that i made up right? you have like marvel tales and you have uh I think there's another one too. I don't remember what though. Um, we have the, you know, the the main one here, Amazing Spider-Man. And then we have Spectacular Spider-Man, which was originally published as Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. 
but that was dropped. Um, it would eventually come back as part of the adjectiveless Spider-Man post-Clone Saga. So Spider-Man became Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Uh, and it could be because they were trying to entice people who might have left during the Clone Saga to come back, as if to say, yes, Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Yeah, and, it seems like it, but who knows. <laughs> uh, and there was also a quarterly Spider-Man uh, book called Spider-Man Unlimited. That filled in like the fifth weeks of publication. This way, there'd be every single week of the year there would be a Spider-Man book on the shelf. And you know, and then, from from my perspective, having not read most of the the books in this Clone Saga, it made researching it very difficult because these titles keep changing, <laughs> and and you know the story continues week to week. But you know, uh, so you have to keep bouncing back through different series to to follow what's going on. Uh, but that's all part. Of, I'm sure that's all part of the fun of of doing this kind of renaming. It was really. I, I even said I had to ask Chris, like, "Am I getting this right? Is this right? What is this? Like, what happened?" Uh, and, and I'll tell you the truth, Chris wasn't sure about a lot of it either. So it's not exactly, it's not exactly cut and dry. Um, Peter Parker's clone returned in Spider-Man number fifty-one. That was October nineteen ninety-four, written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Tom Lyle. He came back because he heard Aunt May was dying, which she was. She was. Obviously, he didn't die at Shea Stadium. He had a rough life drifting around under the name Ben Riley. That was a portmanteau of Uncle Ben's first name and Aunt May's maiden name. In Web of Spider-Man number 119, November 1994, written by Terry Cavanaugh, penciled by Stephen Butler, Kane shows up and attacks Peter and Ben, turning them into fast friends. <laughs> uh, Peter lets him crash at his pad and passes him off as a blonde cousin. Ben Riley takes up the mantle and a new costume of Scarlet Spider, the punk rockinest Spider-Man of all. This happens at behind Peter's back, though, of course. There are yeah. a lot of several near run-ins, you know, where, like, Peter leaves an area and Ben shows up right after. Or, like, they're, like, you know, ships in the night. But for a while, the, uh, Peter was unaware that Ben Riley was uh, this other Spider was he being called the Scarlet Spider right away, or did that happen? I think it happened right away, didn't it? I think it did. Yeah, I I, I, I don't recall exactly but when this, and why, but this yeah. would this would be the Spider-Man with the torn blue hoodie on it. So yeah. if, if you're not if you're not sure, that's that's where that came from. In the three-part Spider-Man Funeral for an Octopus, March through May 1995, written by Tom Brevoort and Mike Kantarevich, penciled by certain sure. Stuart Johnson. Uh, funeral for an octopus, well, duh. How else could they depict Kane as a grade-A badass and to have him kill a Ditko villain? It was a bad idea. It, it was actually even, like, it's such a bait-and-switch, too, because uh, isn't it uh, Kane shoots webbing on his face and then Ben rips it off? And they and it and then bad. and they put and then so Doctor Octopus gets arrested, but then Kane rips open the police van and kills him anyway. Kills it was him. like, what? The, yeah. What is all that about? I guess to show that Ben <laughs> Riley was a hero at heart or whatever. The, there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, fingers in the pot here trying to make Ben seem the most virtuous character, the most relatable character, and the yeah. nicest character here. Yeah, to the point of like just adding in a weird superfluous scene like that, you know, just yes, like what making is... everyone else. It's it's like it's like lowering the uh, lowering the uh, the what is it the the pole here to make everyone else just seem so much worse. Exactly. Yeah, everyone took a step back so he could look like yeah. he took a step forward. But uh, anyway, so Doctor Octopus died, and they even showed his body uh, yep. on panel to make sure everyone knew that it was not going to be a switcheroo because they have never. Brought back Ever. a comic book character after showing their dead body. That's a uh, interesting. Especially not Doctor Octopus. Definitely not. No, Doctor Octopus never died. That's uh, after nope. that. Uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Eventually, Peter finds out that Ben is Scarlet Spider, and he's joined by the mysterious and murderous Kane, who first appeared in Web of Spider-Man 119, as I mentioned before, and Web of Spider-Man number 123, April 1995, by Terry Cavanaugh and Stephen Butler, uh, to confront the Jackal, whose surprise is not dead either. What? Tur- turns out he's the true Miles Warren. The other was an imperfect <gasps> first-generation clone that degenerated. And, oh, yeah, so was the first Gwen Stacy. There's another one, a better one. Uh, he's got designs on... You see why this gave me trouble, folks? <laughs> he's got designs on whipping up a whole mess of clones, and Peter, Peter and Ben fight some of them. And then the Scryer and the Traveler get involved, and I... I I really did my best to try to make heads or tails of these these characters that I couldn't. I know J.M. DeMatteis came up with them, I think, right? He at least came up with, or or he at least kind of took Judas Traveler as like a pet character. Um, it, it's you know I've heard that you know Traveler is not a Spider-Man villain at heart. Yeah. Or it, he's he's you know he's not a street level guy. He's a mystical guy. He's he's hard to explain. He's like an all power. He's one of these cosmic Marvel characters that can Basi- do, he's that like can the stranger almost. Yeah. He can point at anything and make anything happen. He has all of Marvel's you know villains as we'll show later or I'm going to talk about a little bit. They're all in fear of him. He's all powerful, but I just could not get what. Well, what are they doing here? It's just really, it's, I guess it, whatever they want is the answer. And we and we are. Uh, I think we're just as confused as the other creators. Yes. Because it seemed like some of the creators thought that that Judas Traveler worked for Scryer. Who, who, you know, Scryer is like a pale, ghostly face, like in a in monk robes. Mm. Uh, and others thought that Scryer worked for Traveler because he told them that he did. Mm. <laughs> and. Uh, we have a, you know, eventually the the scryers is like a cult, and they're working with someone in, in to orchestrate a, a deconstruction of Peter Parker, and uh, long after J.M.D. Mateus left, they they said that Judas Traveler was just a a mutant with reality augmenting powers or something. Yeah, you know, we're gonna fill in a little bit more on these guys later, but I promise you, by the end of this episode, you still will have no idea what these guys were doing there, and that's, I think, how everyone feels. Yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, one of Jackal's crazy Peter Parker clones gives Ben Riley evidence that he's the real deal. Peter Parker is the clone. In Amazing Spider-Man number 400, April 1985, written by J.M. DeMatteis, penciled by Mark Bagley, Aunt May dies. At her wake, Peter Parker was arrested for a string of murders all the way in Salt Lake City. But how could that have happened? Well, they were committed by Kane, who was trying to frame Ben Riley, Proving that Kane is really stupid because it wouldn't stand to reason that all the Peters had the same fingerprints. Like, wouldn't that, you know, yeah. if if you're trying to frame Ben Riley using your, you know, fingerprint evidence, it, you know it's going to blow back on Peter Parker. And why, why that was stupid will be revealed as we talk more about the trial. Um, ben does the honorable thing, though, and switches places with Peter in prison so Peter can go out and clear both their names. And that uh, brings us to the trial of Peter Parker. And uh, just a just a brief step back here. That uh, that Amazing Spider-Man number four hundred, a wonderful issue. Really not indicative of the, of no, the time in which it was. It, it reads almost as a standalone too. If you understand yeah. the basic relationships between you know Peter Parker, Mary Jane, and Aunt May. It, you can. I would recommend that one. I really, could, really couldn't recommend the one surrounding it, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly, I'm 
I'm a fairly soft touch when it comes to reading comics. I can be moved pretty easily. Yeah. And uh, that one does move me a bit. That one is a. Uh, it sometimes it's a hard one to get through because there it, there is a lot of emotion there. There's a lot of history. Um, a scene in particular, you have them on. Are they on top of uh, the Empire State Building? Uh, they're on or a the skyscraper. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know which one it is. And uh, and they're looking off, and Aunt May just says to Peter out of nowhere, "How does it feel to That's swing right. through the sky?" Yep. And he's like, "What?" And she's like, how stupid do you think I am, Peter? <laughs> I, I've known that you are Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, so that, that, really that's a watershed moment. Yeah, it's really Absolutely. nice. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 it puts a whole different cast on a, a pretty long-running history of Spider-Man, you know, that he's yeah, been hiding this from her, and they've been kind of playing this game together. Yeah, because, it, it, I mean, when you read Aunt May, she's just a doddering old fool most of the time, but now you, you, it kind of it draws a line under that. It's like, okay, she was doing—she was acting, you know? yeah. And uh, acting it might be a uh, pretty apropos word, considering how she came back. But <laughs> we'll get to that another time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, The Trial of Peter Parker. And uh, like we mentioned, this is a weekly book. And at this point, the Spider books, they were sort of akin to like the triangle numbering era of Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it wasn't like, you know, four different stories, four different adventures. It was like a continuous weekly story. That so was that was issue. the attempt, at least, yeah. right? That was what they were trying to do. <laughs> well, the, the numbers were all right. You're right. I don't know about the story. <laughs> uh, now, the first book of the month, Web of Spider-Man, number 126, July 1995, with words by Todd DeZago and pencils by Robert, Roy Burdine, who I've never heard of no, before or after this. Um, now, Peter is web-slinging around town, thinking about recent events, when Kane shows up and beats the hell out of him, uh, all while claiming that he's a fan. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Kane's victim is a—we have a—we have Kane's victim. It's Jacob Raven, is it? Yeah, it's, it's Detective Jacob Raven. It's because his his, his partner, partner was, was killed. killed in Salt Lake City. In Salt Lake City. And so they're, they're hunting him, yeah, him and— Yeah, and also a woman named Stunner. They are skulking around with their own agendas. And to fill you in on Stunner, okay, she was in love with Dr. Octopus at his time of passing. The way she she looked was a she was like a superpowered female, basically, just big, you know, buxom oh, yeah. female. She was really a hologram or a projection. And oh, uh, in okay. reality, she was a she was like a, a like a morbidly obese woman. Or okay. it's, it's 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 bad. Um, it actually <laughs> makes you know, sense since obviously she was slipping through the story, so they could draw boobs, though. I mean, it really is. That's really the only reason she's here is like the, the gratuitous boob shots. That's it. Yeah, no, that, but it, that, that's still not even the most confusing part of the story. No. Um, <laughs> at the end of this, uh, Judas Traveler shows up and he teleports Kane and Spidey away. Yep, and then we catch up with them again in Amazing Spider-Man number 403. These are all going to be July 1995. This is written by J.M. DeMatteis, penciled by Mark Bagley. Peter's now in an ethereal court with Carnage as prosecutor. <laughs> Kane as Pete's defending lawyer. A tra- the Judas Traveler as the judge and Scryer as the bailiff, I guess? Something like that. He seems like he's doing uh, security. And a jury comprised of uh, Ravencroft Prison's inmates. So yeah, uh, Ravencroft. Well, we get to have uh, we get to have Carnage on the cover of a book. That that helped things, I'm sure. And uh, yeah, the, the cover is pretty striking. And uh, but like, what a weird shift this took. You yeah. know, the, which trial? I guess this is this is the trial of Peter Parker. Uh, Ravencroft is kind of chasing a certain other asylum from another publisher at this time, trying to 
fill that role never really happened, but this was their attempt or part of their attempt. Both trials happen simultaneously, and it's tough to say which is more confusing. Uh, we do get a moment of Mary Jane on the witness stand where she's asked about Peter's whereabouts shortly after their wedding. This is a callback to the kind of overrated Craven's Last Hunt storyline where Peter was buried alive. The story ended with Craven blowing his brains out. But don't worry, he's just a character killed off in a J.M. DeMatteis story, so he'll get better soon enough. Uh, for example, Aunt May, Harry Osborne, etc. And actually, first Craven's daughter came out for a little while, or son, or yeah. something like that. There, there, there were like there were like three or four Craven siblings. That's uh, <laughs> the family, the hunting family. <laughs> in the end, Peter is found guilty and sentenced to death. So Cain flips out and tries to kill everyone in the court. Then Judas Traveler declares Peter not guilty because he got a bad guy like Cain to attempt to sacrifice himself. Okay, sure, that's what we call <laughs> justice. Why was this in a courtroom? It doesn't really make any... Uh, so back to Manhattan with a lot of you. So basically this whole issue sort of pulls us out of a four-part, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, it almost has nothing to do with the rest of it, but uh, it, it's here, weird, yeah. just indicates the whole saga. Uh, now, let's move on to part three here. This is Spider-Man number 60. Uh, this is, again, also July. And uh, written by Howard Mackey with pencils by Tom Lyle. Back in New York, Spider-Man and Kane face off against Stunner, ultimately resulting in Spidey knocking out Kane and taking him to the courthouse to confess his crimes, and also to clear Ben and Peter's names. Yeah, or I guess really Peter's name, but... Well, yeah, because Ben really ben doesn't... I don't, I, don't, him, yeah. I don't think he's got a social security card. No. Now, uh, Kane wakes up at the courthouse, and they fight their way to the courtroom, which is, you know, exactly what you want. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And they're, and they're talking the whole time and breaking the down walls. It's like the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> you know, during the fracas, uh, Kane reveals that he is actually the first clone. Mm -hmm. He is the deformed, degenerative clone of Peter Parker. Uh-oh. Whoa, he got like a lumpy face and everything. Yeah, he's, he's starting to fall apart, and that brings us right to... The Spectacular Spider-Man number 226, The Final Verdict. Uh, the cover of this one is Scarlet Spider and Spider-Man facing off antagonistically in profile, nearly close enough to kiss. Uh, I think against... they're smelling each other's hair. Right? They, I mean, they're, they're really close. <laughs> uh, it's against a white background. The way their eyes are positioned, it almost simulates a Spider-Man face, But and this is probably my own thing, Chris, but... The way the the peaks of the eyes, the corners are kind of like they kind of like have Egyptian eyeliner on them, right? They're like a little extra yes, flared yeah. out. Uh, it kind of freaks me out. Takes me out of the whole thing, really. But do you see two vases or a face? I don't know. It's it's really quite a <laughs> uh, quite a optical illusion here. Yeah, it's very very weird. Yes, and we have a, a caption that says at last. The one true Spider-Man revealed. Dun, dun, dun. If that doesn't give it away. Yeah, really. Uh, except and that. also the solicitations coming out. That probably this. helped also. <laughs> <laughs> this issue begins sort of how the last one ended. Close enough, I think. Uh, the courtroom sure. is in chaos and Kane is at the center of it. He's lunging at Peter Parker and it seems the worm has turned. Kane says, I'll prove I'm the true serial killer, Parker, by killing you. Now, technically, you have to murder more than one person to be considered a serial killer, but we'll we'll let him go. He's just trying to level up. Yeah. Uh, we get to read Ben's mind for a little while. He goes, Kane's got to know the truth. He must realize Peter and I traded places, and I'm really Ben Riley. Yeah, or he's just a freaking maniac. 
Just a dude. Everything is mayhem as a bunch of attendees that looked afflicted with leprosy rushed to the exit. <laughs> and uh, we got to mention here, the art is... I, I really get the impression this book was rushed. It had to be rushed. Very rushed. Uh, I mean, there are, there are scenes later that look like they might have been drawn in 10 minutes. Uh, yeah. Pages, I mean, entire pages. Yeah, yeah. The, the inking is, is poor. The, the art in this issue is pretty terrible. It's, it's, it's like almost they... difficult to look at. It's like they went from sketch to ink. Like they skipped the pencils. It was just yeah, exactly. Very rushed. Very so, rushed looking. So there's a lot of a lot of people look like their faces are coming off. A lot of weird looking uh, stuff. I, I guess the poses are all okay, but all the the finishes are just not there. It's bad. So um, Spider-Man shows up and he's just busting and clocks Kane right in the face and he says. No need to demonstrate your homicidal tendencies, pal. Show and tell is over. It's nap time. And then uh, cookies and juice, I'd imagine, right? Probably. That's usually what comes yeah. after. I think so. Yeah, or, 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 or my, 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 might come before. I'm not sure. I don't know if we <laughs> wanted to settle. Uh, either way, Ben Riley wants to help Spider-Man fight Kane, but a weird-looking brunette woman speaking on behalf of Mary Jane tells them not to blow their cover. Yeah, it's supposed to be Mary Jane. It looks <laughs> yes. nothing like Mary <laughs> nothing Jane. Nothing like Mary Jane. But she says in a whisper, Hold on, mister. I've seen that look in other eyes. You may have sat through the trial, but it was my husband and our future at risk. Please don't jeopardize us now. We got to mention Mary Jane is pregnant at the time. That's right. That, that was DeFalco's doing. Yeah. Yes. Now, uh, a bunch of cops pile on Kane in an effort to restrain him. One such officer says, look out, he's starting to squirm. That's what she said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kane bursts free in the police of the police officers with a defiant chest flexing, because that's what, you know, heroes can do. Yep. Uh, he sends them flying in every direction. I mean, you know the scene. He's basically standing defiantly, and by doing yeah. so, just like, threw, threw every human yeah. off of him. Uh, Kane <laughs> says, squirm, squirm. Kane does not squirm before the likes of you. Squirm count up to three, which means DeFalco <laughs> won the bet. That's right. It's got the... Uh, <laughs> Several squirms in one panel, wager and marvel. I also got to ask here, maybe you can help me out here. So Kane's an imperfect clone of Peter Parker, which we found out last issue. Yeah. And he's worked in secret for years to make Spider-Man look good. That's part of why he's so against Ben Riley. Also, he, he thinks Peter Parker is the greatest guy. Yeah. So why is he like a pompous Doctor Doom style guy all of a sudden? Like, what you know? I, yeah, I don't. I, it doesn't don't really. Know. It doesn't stand to reason. I mean, maybe he wouldn't no. be as like helpful as Peter, but you know, he's like throwing cops off the likes of you. Why? Wh yeah. Where's that coming from? <laughs> anyway, Peter says, <laughs> "All right, already. Maybe squirm was a poor word choice. Not everyone carries a pocket thesaurus." Tom collects on that bonus bet and as well gets as, another squirm in that's there. That's right. And, and the worst Spider-Man dialogue award for the year. I mean, come on. Snaps, Ooh, give me a break. <laughs> Horrible. I love that the word thesaurus is bolded. I know. Like it's it's said with, it was said with emphasis. Thesaurus! <laughs> now, Peter Klob is Kane into a wall, uh, but Kane is still raring to go until Detective Jacob Raven points a gun at his head. Uh, Raven hops into his Commissioner Gordon disguise and arrests Kane. <laughs> Raven goes, you're under arrest, Kane, see? For the murder of my partner, see? Louise Kennedy. Yeah, and as it goes, the voice... This is something that happens in the comic a lot, but the lettering gets smaller get and smaller. smaller in the panel. It's like actually, whisper. Well, that's actually a good a good tactic if, if you're sort of, you know, losing your... 
voice or you're, you're whispering. But I don't understand why it's happening here. Like, why does he get all quiet at the end? The rush job on the lettering. They I, guess, put the balloons I guess they had to. <laughs> uh, and Kane responds, I congratulate you, Detective Raven. Your dogged persistence has finally paid off. You got me. Thinks to himself, for now, I'm beat, surrounded by armed cops. I can escape at my leisure. That's more than enough to clear Peter Parker, currently being represented by Ben Riley, a clone of Peter Parker. Yep, as he walks out. <laughs> I, I don't know if this should be declared a mistrial or contempt of court, because they've made a total mockery of justice here. Yeah, this I, is I ridiculous. Think you just need to unload a gun in there. Or <laughs> Basically. <laughs> <laughs> now, ben and Peter shake hands. Ben goes... Thanks, Spidey. I sincerely want to thank you for clearing the Parker name. Peter replies, No problem, uh, Pete. I honestly couldn't have done it without your help. For whose benefit are they having this awkward exchange? I, it's, it's really, I don't understand. Like, as in, no one seems to be watching it, them. Because it's phony as hell, right? It comes across as, like, real, real, like it's being done for an audience. If I had overheard it, I'd be like, something weird. What is happening here? Why is he, <laughs> they seem so weirdly awkward? Thanks, wink, wink. Spider-Man, wink, wink. Yeah. You know? uh, Mary Jane <laughs> no says, judge. Oh, Spider-Man, I could just kiss you. And she whispers, And that's only the start of what's waiting for you back home. Some of that cookies and juice, I'm guessing. It's right? got to be, right? That seems to be a running theme here. Sure. By the way, in that panel, uh, Mary Jane's hair speaks of her only. So yes. uh, that is good. She, must have been, she was pregnant, so they had to limit her comic time, I think. That was the problem. Yeah, it's like in a sitcom where like, uh, like suddenly someone carries a snack tray around all the time. Exactly, yeah. The purse <laughs> is always in front, yeah. Yes. Now, over at the Daily Bugle, the staff erupts in cheer to hear Peter Parker has been exonerated. J. Jonah Jameson wants them to get back to work and keep their objectivity. Uh, he slips into his darkened office, and when alone, he clenches his fist and exclaims, Hoo-ah! <laughs> <laughs> now, right here, we don't know if it means he's happy or not, but later on, it's revealed that he was actually funding Peter's defense. Yeah, I mean, I, I got the impression that he he was happy, but just from that but one panel, pissed. it's not yeah. clear. You're like, what what is going on? Also, that one panel looks like it's pulled right out of an old Mad magazine, like it was done by Jack Davis, and so... <laughs> And and the fact that he's saying hoo ha, which is such a Mad Magazine thing, it's almost yes. like was that was that That's a weird a like homage? I don't know. It's so strange. Uh, at Jackal's hidden lab, he and another Peter Parker clone are watching Ben and Mary Jane on television, triumphantly leaving the courtroom. Now this would be, I guess, uh, didn't Tom DeFalco want to call him Freak Face for some reason? He did. Uh, but in fact, we never learn his name in this issue. We yeah, it comes out later that he is Spider Side. Yes. yes. Just look at him. So smug. So self-satisfied. I hate him. I hate them both. Jackal says, Really? Most young men find Mrs. Parker rather appealing. Though I've always had a preference for curvy blondes with great big eyes. That's not cool. Yeah, I mean, she only died like five years ago, bro. <laughs> Spider-Side continues. I was referring to Ben Riley and Peter Parker. I still don't understand why you won't allow me to destroy them, Jackal, and let the world know that I am the real Peter Parker. And now, you know, during this scene, it starts at Jackal's peering through a test tube, and later he's mixing contests. I, I just find it so funny for some reason. It's just like doing some chemistry while they chit-chat. And, you know, it's funny. Later in this book, there's, a, there's even more chemistry. A lot of chemistry action scenes in this book. It's really funny. Uh, Jackal says, 
Patience, dear boy. Please have patience. Once I have finished making the necessary adjustments for my carrion virus, I promise we'll all get to we'll all gather together for a good old-fashioned family reunion. And we can forget about this scene. It's not really important. This is no. build up for uh, maximum bonage, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> now, at police headquarters, Kane is confessing his crimes. He says. After I ripped off the police van, Dr. Octopus and I struggled for only a minute, so then I snapped his neck. For some reason, there are four detectives in this room doing the, in doing the interrogation. Uh, Detective Raven is the only one on the other side of a one-way mirror. It's very weird. Then, yeah, it's like, shouldn't he be the one inside? You would think know. so, but it's of all the guys, yeah. <laughs> uh, an officer asks Kane about the murder of Detective Louise Kennedy. Yeah, and Kane says... It happened in Salt Lake City. I killed her. These stories really lose their punch when you're not tearing apart police vans, right? Yeah, uh, Detective Raven even seems let down by the response. He's like, oh, I wish she had punched <laughs> her easy? face through a wall. Oh, that would have been fun. Oh, well. Anyway, after that, we cut right over to a caption that says, Alone in his private laboratory, Dr. Stewart Trainer, Dr. Seward Trainer, checks and rechecks the results of the genetic tests which he recently ran on the Parker fetus. Astounding. Never would I have anticipated a development like this. I hope you're prepared for a shock, Benjamin. You and this poor baby's mother. Inside the Parker residence, Ben and Mary Jane keep up appearances a little while longer until public interest dies down. Like one second longer. You know, if that I, long. I, don't, I don't even think the door latch clicked and they're like, all right, drop it. And th this panel in particular definitely looks like it was drawn like while riding a city bus. It looks so bad. It's unbelievable. Like what happened? Oh, God. Oh, look at Mary Jane. It looks like she's like, I don't know, has plastic surgery or something. She's it's freaking me really, out. And it's like Peter's got like a Ben's got like a like a weird like mustache. Ah, yeah, it's like, like it's, wrinkled. Oh, it's his awful. whole eyebrows look way thick, like caterpillars on his face. It's so strange. It's very bad. Uh, now Peter Parker finally shows up in his Spider-Man garb. Uh, his face mask is pulled down like a hoodie. Yo, street style, son. Peter says, no need to whisper. The curtains are closed, and those TV guys are camped across the street. Even the news media knows better than to intrude on a man and his wife at a time like this. Yeah, right. Yeah. You don't know the news media, do you, buddy? No, this this is not. the time that they put the camera right up in you. Yeah. Now, everyone's glad uh, things have worked out so well, and Ben is no longer being hunted by Kane or Jacob Raven. But what will he do now? Mary Jane says, Your life is a clean slate. What are your plans? How will you celebrate? And she's probably thinking, do you think you could buzz off for a while so I can be alone with my husband? Yes. <laughs> Just then, the phone rings and Mary Jane answers it. It's Dr. Trainer on the other uh, end, and he and he's glad she answered. Uh, he never knows what to say on answering machines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He probably would have been on there like, ah, uh, this is doctor. Uh, how is everything? Anyway. <laughs> Uh, Kane at this moment is being transferred to Rikers Island. That's Riker with a Y, not the Riker that actually exists. Yeah. Encased in some kind of metallic restraint, but he's still wearing a costume and a face mask. I, I, I really tried to. This restraint is really bizarre. Does it look like what are the spikes for? I, I, I don't really understand how this thing works. But anyway, I, yeah, it's very bizarre. I was going to talk about it, and I, I ended up talking about it. I don't know what to say about it though. It's so weird. 
It looks like it would be more pleasurable for a woman, though. It does look like that. I was thinking it. It really does almost <laughs> look like an oversized, like, uh, you know, toy of some kind. But anyway, yes. uh, Kane has a vision of Mary Jane Parker dead and her murderer lurking in the shadows. Something about this character is familiar to Kane. Probably reminds Kane of his own shadow, since all we see is a silhouette. <laughs> Over at Seward Trainer's lab, Dr. Trainerman introduces himself to Peter. And Peter thinks to himself... It's unfair to judge someone I just met, but I don't like this guy. Don't trust him. He seems cold, standoffish, a man more at home with test tubes than people. Trainer may be an old friend of Riley's, but that still doesn't give my clone the right to blab about my life, my secrets. It might be unfair to judge someone you just met, but it's definitely rude to stand in mute silence during introductions thinking about how much you might dislike this guy. Yeah, I can only imagine Dr. Trader was like, and, uh, you know, what do you do for a living? And Peter just looked yeah. at him for like a minute just and a staring. half. You know, like, okay. <laughs> He's just snapping his finger in front mm -hmm. of his face. Uh, Mary Jade says, you have news about our baby? Indeed. Very good news in that regard. Your child appears to be very healthy. Then uh, Peter, uh, Mary Jane and Peter hug tearfully. But the caption says, But something in his friend's manner troubles Ben Riley. Ben goes, We've known each other for a long time, Seward. You wouldn't have asked us to come here unless something was wrong. Or if you needed a ride to the airport. That's usually Or help moving. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, Dr. Trainer reveals that the test re that the test revealed that one of the baby's parents is to be a, is a clone. Peter flips out instantly. Yeah. I mean, instantly goes from, like, standing there calmly to just a freak out. And he says, <laughs> what's your game, mister? We already know who's the clone. It's Ben. Ben! Dude, relax. Yeah, come on. <laughs> ben goes, talk to me, Seward. The Jackal once claimed Peter and I were both clones. Was he telling the truth? And then Trainer goes, perhaps, Benjamin. But on the other hand... I never had an opportunity to compare your DNA with Parker's. Now, wouldn't the DNA be identical? You'd figure, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe some of it has a, a clone funk on it. Maybe so he's like a he's like an XXXY or something. <laughs> I don't. I don't. It's like the, the whole point of a clone. Anyway, I, I, <laughs> you really. I mean, you really. You really could drive yourself nuts trying to pick this apart. I really was yes. like having a lot of trouble at one point with this. <laughs> no, uh, right now, uh, Peter grabs Mary Jane by the wrist and storms off. Come on, Mary Jane, we're out of here. Oh, Mary Jane ain't feeling that. She insists that they hang out until they learn the truth. They're trying to scam us. Trainer is Ben's buddy. They're in it together. And Mary Jane says, you're smart, Peter. You'll know if they pull anything funny. This is literally what every victim of a scam thinks before they get conned, right? I know. Well, I mean, come on. No one goes in being like, <laughs> I'm well, too smart for that. Yeah, I'm not very bright, so I better not, you know, sign on the dotted line. <laughs> no, everyone thinks they got it in the bag and they get screwed. That, that's how I'm. That's how I'm currently supporting fifty-five Nigerian princes. There you go. <laughs> One of them's got to pay off, though. Eventually. You eventually, right? <laughs> Stands to reason. The <laughs> law of odds. Um, <laughs> Doctor Trainer uh, says he's got no vested interest in the results, and the tests are pretty simply. Yeah. You know. Uh, They're probably multiple choice. Yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Jane says, "Do it, Peter. Do it for me, for our baby. But most of all, do it for yourself." Peter responds, okay. And the reason I did it that way, this is, I, I think you, you might agree with me, this is a really weird sequence in three panels. 
Uh, I love this. Yeah. It, it, I just doesn't see. I don't really understand oh, why this point. Yeah. he's having this. Why he's <laughs> yeah. having this uh, reaction? It's like Mary Jane's convincing him to have his DNA compared to Ben. And over these three panels, Peter is cast more and more in shadow, and like the camera pulls out, yeah. and there's a yellow spotlight on him. And so in the last panel, he's sort of alone, just this yellow spotlight, and he's just saying okay, and it's all little, and it's like. What a weird reaction to this question. It's, it doesn't seem to be normal, but whatever. <laughs> but I love this next page. I know. This, <laughs> perhaps the stupidest looking page in comics history <laughs> since the Golden Age. It's it's the Parker Brothers here uh, <laughs> running running their tests. It's oh, it's fantastic. Uh, they're, they're like holding up test tubes. They're mixing beakers. The yep. worms on a computer. They're looking at microfiche. Mm-hmm. Read, reading readouts on a on a piece of paper. It's amazing. <laughs> now, uh, it, you know, it's a collage or a montage of them testing each other's DNA. Why Dr. Trainer isn't involved, we don't know. But the fact is that they look exactly alike. It makes us even more ridiculous. Yeah, it's I, I'm not even sure who's doing what, and you don't even know if it matters. And the yeah, this yeah, Ben has not dyed his hair blonde just yet. No, he he did for a little while. I think when he lived with Peter, that's what I had read about. But he, maybe he does when because uh, he gets mistaken for Peter at Mar- at uh, Aunt May's grave by uh, by Mary Jane's aunt. Ah, uh, I see. So then he decides he's like, oh, I gotta I gotta fix that. And there you go. No one will ever figure out who you are if your hair is blonde. Yeah, that's how um, I got away with a lot of stuff. Too. <laughs> on this, uh, on this great uh, montage page, this captions kind of peppered throughout, and the captions read, <laughs> "And so it begins. Blood and tissue samples are taken, scrutinized, compared, contrasted, analyzed, and subjected to an exhausting variety of examinations." No one will be allowed to leave the theater during the DNA <laughs> testing sequence. I mean, it's like the least yep. exciting thing you could ever see in a comic. <laughs> it's yeah, but it's awesome and it's why it is. Uh, Mary Jane watches this scientific face-off, wrapped with attention. Caption says again, once again, Peter Parker is on trial for his life and the lives of those he loves, and this time a final verdict must be reached and rendered without prejudice or any hope of appeal. And I'm asking you, Chris, why? Why? I don't understand. Uh, no matter who's the clone, neither of them has to die. And it's not like Ben would just take over Peter's life. It's not like, you know, yeah. he, he becomes Mary Jane's husband and the father of the baby. You know, like all that other <laughs> stuff still happened. So why is this so cataclysmic? You know, I don't really get it. And especially, you know, Ben didn't just come back to life. He's been living a life for five years yeah. now. Yeah. So he's got a life that he might want to continue living himself. Sure. Uh, you know, if he is the cl- if he you know if he's not the clone and he's been thought to be the clone, he kind of got the short stick for a while here. But you know, he would have had a he would have likely made different decisions than Peter anyway, right? Yeah. It's it you know this idea that like somehow you know Ben was screwed here. This doesn't ring true. And, and this whole this whole cataclysm, this whole you know the stakes do not seem realistic to me. I don't really understand what like. Why they're freaking out so much. Uh, but at the end, the tests are eventually done, and Peter says, Ben, our conclusions are identical. They're a perfect match. Then there's absolutely no room for doubt. Peter, I am so very sorry. You're the clone. I- I'm the original. 
Yep, that's how the scientific method works, is two people doing the same experiments simultaneously on the same equipment, and then you can just reach a conclusion. That's all. Publish a paper, uh, and that's you're fine. I, I've cured so many diseases that way. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, uh, the splash page here is sort of reminiscent of the cover, except Peter and Ben are not masked. And also, they're not about to kiss. I will say they do they, seem a good foot apart from each other instead of inches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they can't smell each other's uh, mouthwash. <laughs> but uh, it, it's also all that more ugly. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mary Jane is uh, looking on, and she, or next next page, she says, Oh, God. My baby. So what happens to her baby now that the father's a clone? I mean, what am I missing here? Is it is it about the degeneration? Uh, but then didn't Dr. Trainer say it was very healthy? I you know, I don't yeah, what is the problem, Chris? Am I what have I missed here? <laughs> it's yeah, it's very nebulous as, as to whether it's like it's not falling apart yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very strange. Um Peter says, It's a lie. And then he lunges at Ben, looking like a ferocious cat. I mean, he goes bananas, you know what I mean? He and loses like, his mind. And I know this was sort of a dark time for Peter, but, you know, I, I really perceive him as being a lot more even-keeled than this, but uh, yeah. who knows? He's uh, going to take a few steps back to make Ben look virtuous. And, of course, you know, while fighting, they have to talk. That's a comic book rule. <laughs> so Peter says, it's got to be a lie. You can't do this to me. You can't steal my life. Well, technically speaking... Hmm. Your life? Your life? You should have never had it in the first place. I'm the injured party. I'm the one who was robbed of five years. See, that's what I'm saying right there. You know what I'm saying? It's uh, whose life got stolen, buddy. A fact. Now, Peter and Ben fight, smashing each other into Dr. Trainer's expensive-looking machinery. Um, now, Peter is doing most of the punching to make himself look really bad. And... Ben is mostly defending. Yep, pretty much. Uh, Peter thinks it's all a trick by Ben and Dr. Trainer, and maybe the Jackal's involved, too. Ben goes, face the facts, Pete. You've been living under a delusion for the past five years, and it's over. You and that third Parker. You're both fakes. Liar! <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Trainer is restraining Mary Jane, who struggles to be with Peter. Let me go, Dr. Trainer. My husband needs me. Don't be foolish, Mrs. Parker. They're both out of control. Both of them. Again, Peter is wailing away on Ben. Uh, yeah, <laughs> to be honest, Ben seems perfectly in control here, but yeah, all right. He's like, hey, just cool it, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Peter slams Ben against some machinery, breaking loose a pipe that he uses to choke Ben. You're going to finally come clean. I will get the truth, even if I have to choke it out of you. Which is probably the worst way to get the truth out of somebody, right? You cut off the windpipe and... Mm, they're not going to be able to talk and then they die. Not. Yeah, that's yeah. Not, not a good idea. No, no. And then uh, Mary Jane finally breaks free of Dr. Trainer and rushes over to be at her husband's side. Stop it, Peter! For the love of God, stop! You're killing him! Get away from me! Leave me alone! And then a scene that would live in infamy if we were allowed to remember it. He backhands <laughs> her away with a splat. Yeah. He sends her flying into some machinery, his pregnant wife, mind you. Uh, and Peter, uh, he immediately re at least realizes what he did was wrong. Oh, yeah, right away he says, My God, what have I done? What kind of man am I? You're a clone, son. <laughs> a dirty, stinking, no-good wife, spotting clone. <laughs> <laughs> Pete runs to the door, MJ pathetically calling after him. 
Uh, we end the issue back at Jackal's super secret squirrel society lab, <laughs> where he is looking through a graduated cylinder because we can't. We like chemistry, and, and because he's done all the other test tube parts, now he's yeah. Now he's onto the larger container. He, he graduated to a cylinder. <laughs> there you go. He says, uh, "I have." I forgot my jackal voice, whatever it was. But, um, it was very uh, flowery. Oh, that's right. I am now ready to begin mass production of my new and improved carrion virus. And this formula is a guaranteed killer. I just need to pick up a few extra ingredients. A bottle of vanilla extract, a little oregano, and a highly experimental isotope. His good buddy Spider-Side is nearby. He says, I'll go. Anything better than being cooped up in this stupid lab. And then Jackals, he's cool with it. And he even has a new costume prepared for this. <laughs> what are we up to, like the eighth Parker clone here? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, though it does look about six sizes too Th- big. Doesn't it look huge? I mean, this thing is like a tent. I don't understand. Like, <laughs> is this the baggy uniform? I, it's so weird. Yeah, Omar the tent maker was doing uh, double duty here. This uh, research complex, by the way, is on Sayville, Long Island. So is that your old house, Chris? Is that where he went to? It's in the neighborhood. You were keeping all the isotopes <laughs> in your basement over there? Uh, now, this this is a setup for a uh, New Warriors crossover yeah. because New Warriors was part of the Spider-Man family. And DeFalco was, was writing it, I believe, right? Or at least he... No, it was uh, – God, I don't remember. He, Fabian Niciesa started it, and then it went to another guy. I don't remember his name off the top of my head, though. Though, uh, Either way, it wasn't very good. No, we're not. We won't be talking about that issue at all. <laughs> no. Jackals. Jackal says, "Trust me, my boy. The day will come when clones like you rule the earth, and with your help, it'll be here much sooner than anyone anticipates." And without his help, it'll be another fifteen or twenty years. Right? All right. So fine. <laughs> it'll happen eventually. And that wraps up the issue, folks. It is. It is says to be continued, even though this is a four-part. Miniseries with one issue. It's a satisfying that... resolution. Right? Oh yeah, everything is fun. Oh well, <laughs> everything wrapped up nicely for us. So, uh, but that is not close to being the end of the Clone Saga, and not even half of the story behind uh, all this fun stuff. And we're going to come back and tell you all about it after we take a little quick break. When I think you're going to actually hear Tom DeFalco himself speak. Uh, and when we come back, we will tell you more about the Clone Saga, more about the creators, and more about the world of Marvel. Mm-hmm. Well, um, when Roger Stern f- first started with the Hobgoblin, I happened to be the editor of Amazing Spider-Man. So, uh, you know, originally the Hobgoblin was not going to be a mystery, um, but w- we decided it would be a mystery, and uh, I-, I said to Roger, "Okay, well, it'll be a mystery." And Roger said, "I'm not going to tell you." Who I'm thinking of, and I said, fine, but I'm going to keep a list of suspects, um, and I'm going to cross them off as 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 they're gone, so that when you're ready to tell me who it is, we'll, we'll see we'll we'll see what it you know whether or not I agree with you. Um, I have a. a, a a small connection to uh, mystery books and novels and that sort of stuff in in another world. So uh, I'm familiar with how the mystery genre works, and you know we went from there. Now at one point, uh, Roger decided to leave Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, Danny Fingeroth invited me on the book. Uh, 
I wasn't sure I could do it. Then he said, well, why don't you script the first couple of issues of Roger's stuff, and, and we'll see. Um, once it was decided that I would do it, I said to Roger, okay, who did you think the Hobgoblin was? And he told me who it was, and I said, uh, you know, his, his idea was it was uh, Roger Kingsley, the evil twin. And I said, evil twin? you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, I, I, I may go in another direction. All right, and we are back talking about uh, the Clone Saga after having just read Spectacular Spider-Man number 226. But that was, even though that was the conclusion of the trial of Peter Parker or the trials, it's funny, uh -huh. it's funny how neither trial seemed to be have any... Resolution, resolution, or <laughs> import, or anything—you know—they seem to have no effect on anything. Um, but the saga continued after this. There was more clone saga to come. So, following the trial of Peter Parker was maximum clonage. It was a <laughs> <laughs> little little editorializing, Chris, on that one. This was originally intended to wrap the whole thing up and set Ben Riley up as the permanent Spider-Man. It was a six-part story arc happening in the four Spider-Man titles with an Alpha and Omega issue as bookends. This introduced yet another demented Peter Parker clone, Spider-Side, who we mentioned before and Chris lent his uh, beautiful voice to before. Yes. <laughs> Series ends with Peter giving Ben Riley the Spider-Man mantle, but no real resolution of his story or the fact that he splatted his wife. Never gets brought up again, I think. No, he's able to sidestep that pretty good, you know, yeah. unlike fellow spouse striker Hank Pym. Mm -hmm. uh, apropos of nothing, uh, Jim Shooter mentioned on his blog that the uh, that Pym striking his wife was actually misdrawn uh, by Bob Hall because uh, he decided to turn turn what was like basically an accidental swat, like a, you know, back off and accidentally you know, smacking her in the face, mm. which isn't good, but still, no. it's better than turning, turning into a full-on right cross. <laughs> Um, and it's interesting that Spidey's transgression has kind of fallen to the wayside, while with Hank, it's almost become a character-defining trait. Oh, people mention it all the time, and whenever yeah. he's, you it's know... Like, it's like Iron Man's an alcoholic, Hank Pym's a wife-beater. It's like one story defined their entire existence. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's why they backed off of him as Ant-Man, you know, and now there's, yeah. there's Scott Lang and there's another one, too. There's uh, a... Grady, that's right. Grady or whatever, yeah. That's right. He was the he was the criminal uh, he was guy. The irredeemable Ant Man, right? Uh, by what's his name, Layman or whatever. Kirkman. 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 Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, despite Ben Riley having been groomed for Spider-Man adventures, he went off into some Scarlet Spider comics first. Uh, more on that mm -hmm. later. While Spider-Man had two issues focusing on Peter Parker outside of his spider suit, having been activated as Jackal's Manchurian Candidate or something like that. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of complicated and not worth going into much detail. No. Uh, ben does get some time as Spider-Man, tackling some new revamped villains like a female Dr. Octopus and, like I said before, the son of Craven the Hunter. Uh, those didn't do too well. Eventually, it turns out that Ben Riley is actually the clone, and Peter comes back to being Spider-Man, although how it all happened, I really couldn't come close to explaining. <laughs> I recommend anyone that wants to check out the, the, more about this, they should look at the amazing Clone Saga resources at lifeofreillyarchives.blogspot.com 
which was indispensable for even whatever information I gave you. Essentially, <laughs> came a lot of it came from there. And Make also, sure you have a lot of free time for that because you'll open that up, and oh, then yeah. a, uh, moments later, you'll look up and realize that you lost six hours of your day to it. It is dense, but it, it's it complete, is great. And, it, and it has a it lot of commentary great. by the by the creators involved at the time. It's it's if it was supposed interested. to be turned into a book, but it never happened. I did. I saw a lot of talk about that yeah. around it, but I, I couldn't find any book. It's a book I would no. definitely consider looking at. Absolutely. But, but if you get through, if you go to that site, you will <laughs> learn a lot, and you will probably be able to make more sense of this. Than I am, and uh, also I used a lot of uh, SuperiorSpiderTalk.com, um, which isn't only about the Clone Saga, but the bits about the Clone Saga were very helpful, also. And uh, I think it's a generally a pretty good Spider-Man resource. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think for our purposes, that kind of wraps up the Clone Saga, but not the full story. Not all of it. <laughs> uh, before we go into the, the the other side of the story, we're going to talk a little bit about what Tom DeFalco did after leaving, or after this issue anyway. Uh, now, despite being ousted by management, Tom returned to write Amazing Spider-Man at issue number 407, which is cover dated January 1996, and uh, orchestrated, as we see, much of the Clone Saga, but we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, he created Spider-Girl in What If, volume 2, number 105, cover date February 1998. Uh, this led to him creating Marvel's MC2 imprint in October 98, which is an alternative universe set in the not-so-far-flung future. Uh, Spider-Girl was May Parker, but not that May. No. This was to be uh, Peter and MJ's daughter, you know, the one she was pregnant with throughout the Clone Saga. Uh, Peter had retired the webs due to an injury he'd suffered. Uh, DeFalco would go on to write 130 issues of Spider-Girl, which was MC2's only marginally successful title when compared to such luminary titles as A-Next and (laughs) J2. A-Next was a future take on the Avengers and J2... Was the son of the juggernaut. <laughs> Weren't you always now, wondering about him? <laughs> he was, uh, and, and actually part of his costume was a flannel tied around his waist. Oh, that's so, awesome. There's that. <laughs> oh, God, that's so good. Now I gotta find it. <laughs> no, the title would be changed to Amazing Spider-Girl after issue 100. Uh, it also had a much shorter run as Spectacular Spider-Girl, which is a digital first title. Uh, she's made several appearances of late in the all-new Everybody Has Spider-Powers Marvel Universe. <laughs> yep. Uh, now, her uh, her book was often canceled or threatened to be canceled. However, due to a vocal and supportive fan base, it evaded the axe several times over. At 130 issues, that's no laughing That's matter. no small feat. That's yeah. a lot. Uh, so it's, even, you know, nowadays that would be like a far-off dream. But yeah, e- even, we'll even in the early, <laughs> even at that time, late 90, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, that was unusual. So kudos oh, yeah. to that. Yeah, and then uh, in March of 2005, he was named the editor-in-chief once again, but this time it's of Cracked Magazine. They would fold in 2007. I guess uh, top 10 lists didn't, uh, didn't well, get the magazine buyers. that's sort of what they became, I think. Yeah. Now they're Cracked.com, which is all we lists. Clickbait lists, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, in early 2009, DeFalco decided he wanted out of the spider game altogether. He would say, The bad news about working on the same thing for that many years is that editors start to believe it is the only thing you can do. So the only way I can get non-spider-related work is to work for other companies. Uh, Since then, he's written dozens of graphic novels and hundreds of comics for Archie, Moonstone, Dynamite, DC, and Marvel, as well as several comic book reference books, including his popular Comics Creators On dot 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 series through Titan Books. Have you ever read one of those? No, I haven't, but I've seen them. I've I've got 
I've got like four or five of them. They're they're pretty good. Yeah, I might get, I gotta give them a look. Definitely. They're a little bit out of date now, because uh, it's like it's interviews with creators and it's from you know ten years ago. Yeah, and they're so all saying comics will be great forever now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it, like it's before anybody started talking about movies and stuff. So or like mm. at least you know the movies like we know them now, not the turn of the century types right um now uh in 2017 he will be writing the blockbuster new series reggie and me which is uh what i call my life actually (laughs) and this is is for archie comics yep so uh be on the lookout for that but he still gets work and that's that's good to hear absolutely now to wrap up for sal buscema in late 1990s sal buscema worked for dc penciling batman superman and superboy stories and inking the creeper wonder woman and other characters of that time, Sal said, the short time I worked for DC, they were giving me all these young guys that could hardly hold the pencil in their hands and asking me to tweak it. In cases like that, I would definitely put a lot of myself into it and change whatever I felt needed to be changed. He returned to Marvel inking Pat Olaf on Spider-Girl Annual Volume 1, number 1999, which came out in September 1999. That was sort of a gimmick book for the annual. They numbered it weirdly. Yeah, and they were uh, doing that for all of them. That. Yeah, it, it sounds like a, like a uh, line wide type of thing. Yeah. And he worked briefly for both companies before becoming the regular inter- inker on The Incredible Hulk in 2000, along with other scattered Marvel work. In 2003, Busema described himself as retired for three years, and I'm still inking jobs for Marvel. <laughs> His inks fairly well closed out the Spider Girl series and then did a little more work for DC Comics. Most recently, he inked G.I. Joe Annual and the Dungeons and Dragons Forgotten Realms series for IDW Publishing. That was just a few years ago, so it's not, yeah. not too long ago. Busema received the Inkpot Award in 2003 and received the Hero Initiative Lifetime Achievement Award in September 2013. At the Baltimore Comic Con. That's great news. Yep. Now, a little bit about the saga behind the saga. Mm-hmm. And you got to remember that we were uh, we were very very deep in speculation. Uh, we all thought that certain books were going to put our, our kids through college and put down payments on houses. Yeah. A lot of people think that this started with Superman Volume Two, Number Seventy Five. Don't remember what happened in that issue, but it came out in January 1993. Something happened, yeah. (laughs) Or it was cover dated January 93. Um, Now, though, comic speculation has been on the rise since, you know, the mid-80s, 85-ish. This was probably the literal peak of the market. It was, of course, the death of Superman. Sales plummeted almost immediately thereafter. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which might lend credence to the uh, claim. Uh, DC DC was able to make some gains with its Nightfall arc in Batman, which ran from April of 93 through August of 94. It was like a, it was a trinity of uh, of stories. It was about Nightfall, Night's Quest, and Night's End. Night's End, yeah. Yeah, and uh, this is where Batman's back is broken by Bane, which has become Bane's only character trait of late. A character by the name of John Paul Valet, Asriel, takes up the mantle, and he kind of goes bananas. Uh, he was kind of a take on the extreme hero. I guess it was a, uh, you know, this is if, if Batman was part of the Image universe, perhaps. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Joe Casada <laughs> designed that suit, too, and he purposely yes, he went, did. like, over the top, uh, you know, super flashy super extreme and, yeah. and stuff yeah. <laughs> and uh you know batman of course gets better and he does take over take over the uh, role again yeah uh, now at this point marvel decided hey you know what we need a death of superman type story to stimulate sales and so 
the Clone Saga was born. Uh, Spider-Man editor Mark Bernardo said, marching orders, were, marching orders we were given by upper management to come up with something similar in scope to DC's Death of Superman storyline, which at the time was breaking sales records left and right. Thus, no outrageous idea was out of bounds. Terry Kavanaugh was cajoled <laughs> into blurting out his clone idea which was first met but with groans and indifference until someone, to my recollection, J.M. DeMatteis, suddenly realized the radical possibilities of such a storyline. The idea, and, and we hear this a lot now, yeah. <laughs> the idea was to bring Spider-Man back to basics, now, back to his roots. I mean, we just got to stop there for a second. <laughs> they, how, how far away did they get from that original idea, you know? Like, Let me ask Judas Traveler what he thinks about that. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> now, oh, gosh. Now, as we mentioned, you know, it seemed like they were making certain characters take a step back to make it look like Ben Riley took a step forward. Throughout the years, lead, or the months leading up to this, we had Spider-Man, you know, Peter, acting, he was getting darker. Uh, you know, he had, uh, there was a scene where, or there was a storyline where his parents came back, but they were really, spoiler alert, androids right. by the Red Skull and the Chameleon or some crap. And uh, he started becoming very darker. And he would uh, not be Peter Parker as often. He was in the costume more and more often. And he referred to himself as the spider. Mm. He's not the man. He's the spider. Also, you know, and this has been since, uh, what is it, Amazing Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21. They wanted him to be single again. Mm -hmm. It seemed like the right right as soon as they married him, they wanted him to be single again. Yeah. Um, this was originally intended to be a relatively short arc and would wrap up in Amazing Spider-Man number 400. Which, uh, makes, which makes sense, right? Sure, that would absolutely. be a big cataclysm, big issue. They could do a big thing. But it would have been a six-month story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would have been... Probably, I, I don't know if it would be fondly remembered now, considering what the subject matter was, but I think it would be more accepted. But though it does, it did, does have like a little bit of a cult <laughs> type of feel it to does, it. It does, yeah. Um, now, uh, Peter and Mary Jane would move to Oregon, and uh, Ben Riley would become the new and only Spider-Man. Uh, the clone would be teased for a while, like we mentioned during uh, during the lead-up. Uh, he first surfaced in Spectacular Spider-Man number 216, September 1994, while visiting Aunt May in the hospital. And Peter will wind up he winds up face to face with Spider-Man. Terry Kavanaugh <laughs> introduced the character of Judas Traveler in oh, Web okay. Spider-Man number 117, uh, and then some creative problems began. According to a Spider-Man assistant editor and one of the leading contributors to that Life of Riley uh, blog there, uh, Glenn Greenberg, he says, No one, not the writers, not the editors, seemed to know who or what the hell Judas Traveler was. He was seemingly this immensely powerful, quasi-mystical being with amazing abilities. But, that, but what was the real deal with him? To be honest, a character like Travel, Traveler didn't really fit into Spider-Man's world, and that's definitely true. That's definitely true, and it's about, this is what we were saying before, like, you're going to finish this podcast and not still not understand what he was doing there. I don't think it's understandable. I don't think the people yeah. writing it or doing it would be able to answer it any better. Uh, this is a little ed editorializing by uh, our part. Uh, on our part, but I think the problem was here, and, I, and, I, and Chris agrees, is that there's too many cooks in yeah. this thing, and they really spoiled this this whole crossover. Uh, you know, we don't know what the editorial meetings were like, but obviously there was not a lot of collusion. I mean, the fact that you have a four-part series and the second issue takes place in cosmic space. <laughs> oh, no, it was, it was actually in Ravencroft, but it was in, like, I guess a... 
like a pocket stasis, ethereal stasis, no. yeah, something like this. Uh, yeah, it's uh, different creative teams under different editors, and they're trying to and make different departments too. Different departments, yeah. Well, yeah. This, this, you know, after I think we get into this in a minute. After Defalco left, we do uh, editorial. We'll describe it in a minute, but it went kind of fractured. Uh, mm -hmm. Made it really hard to keep this kind of, especially weekly. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they don't have time to belabor the minutia of these stories. Uh, I think at very least one editor should have handled the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, this event only, even you know, make him the spider or her the spider clone saga clone, yeah. person. Uh, but it, it it was compounded with the loss of a vital editorial component, which was Tom DeFalco. He came up with the idea to make Mary Jane pregnant thinking it would kind of ramp things up. And then pretty much right after that, he was fired, right when Marvel <laughs> su suffered severe post-speculation boom losses. This would eventually lead to them filing for bankruptcy, but that was, I think, 97, maybe late 96. Yeah, later than this, yeah, a little yeah. bit later. Uh, many of his money-making ideas were unsustainable in the new comics world, although, to be fair, I think he was basically scapegoated by executives. 100%. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. The fact that he came back and was writing for them, you know, a, a couple of years later or even a year later shows yeah. that there wasn't too much bad blood, but they had to, you know. Someone, a uh, head had to roll. Someone had to be on the yeah. chopping block for this one, and it, and it was him. So, uh, I mean, we sort of messed up, you know, because he had increased profits 500%, <laughs> but that's what we call American business, folks. Uh, following Main personal. It's just business. Following DeFaco's departure, Marvel split the role of editor-in-chief among five people, each controlling their own group. And that split was Mark Gruenwald, was, his universe was Avengers and Cosmic. Bob Harris did the mutant world of X-Men and X-related books. Bob Budiansky did Spider-Man. Bobby Chase did Marvel Edge. And Carl... It was like Daredevil and uh, the darker books. I think Hulk was part of that for a little while, Ghost Rider. It, it, but it almost seems arbitrary, and, and as we see yeah. later, there was a lot of there was a lot of crossover books. You know, like if you were if you were the, you know, Spider-Man editor, you might not be in totally in charge of one of the Spider crossover books. You know what sure. I mean? It became really weirdly complex. It, it, there was not a lot of good oversight here. Uh, last guy was Carl Potts. He was the Epic Comics and General Entertainment person. All of this will be important later on in our little story here. <laughs> As more unexplained characters were added to the clone saga and more who's the real clone moments inserted, the Spider-Man ship was rudderless. You know, it was floating along, even from the trial that we talked about. It really seems like the story, they were making it up as they were drawing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what, what is happening? Uh, I mean, the whole thing, the trial of Peter Parker and neither actual trial, anyway. Uh, this, is we, like the, this is like the DC challenge, but... As as a shoot, exactly. Yeah, it's like, it's like at least that's a challenge. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like see what we can do. But this is supposed to be a real event, you know. And it doesn't. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's just floating along. And uh, there are reasons we will reveal as to why that <laughs> happened. Creators began inserting open plot points without any direction, editorial oversight, as described in the post-issue Clone Saga rundown. Marvel sales department also requested an extension to the storyline since these tie-ins were selling selling well. During a fairly soft market, uh, X-Men still doing very well at the time, but mm -hmm. everything had taken a downturn, and, and they had kind of overextended themselves, I think, in terms of, oh, you know, special covers for one thing, but also with just printing a lot of comics, you know what I mean, that yeah. they had to, had to push somehow. But still, after the trial of Peter Parker was over, it was still intended that Peter and Mary Jane would move to Oregon and pass the mantle to Ben Riley. okay? That was 
Still the plan, even up to that issue we just read, but something changed. Yes, uh, over in the X-Men books, we had the Age of Apocalypse that was going on. Sales were really high. Management asked that the storyline be succeed that, that succeeded the trial of Peter Parker, titled Maximum Clonage, be expanded. Uh, it would include the bookend Alpha and Omega issues, much like the Age of Apocalypse, complete with oversizedness and gimmick covers. <laughs> It was originally intended to wrap up all the clone saga's loose ends and set Ben Riley off on new Spider-Man adventures. Instead, a new clone was introduced <laughs> in just about every issue. Yep. <laughs> now, after a slew of character revamps following Maximum Clonage, J.M. DeMatteis resigned <laughs> due to all the crossovers and aimless plot threads. Wow. Uh, yes, from uh, Glenn Greenberg, he recalls, The idea was to have each Spider-Man book retitled so that the Scarlet Spider's name would replace Spider-Man's. Amazing Scarlet Spider, Spectacular Scarlet Spider, Ben Riley Scarlet Spider, and Web of Scarlet Spider. We'd get four new number ones out of it, and it would be a way to capitalize on the Scarlet Spider's popularity one last time before he became the new Spider-Man. Uh, what that meant was holding off on Ben's debut as Spider-Man a l- even longer. Yeah, because this wasn't long enough. The event we never got to stretch it out. You know, there there are like people that started the event. They couldn't even like walk on their own power, and they're leaving yeah. and they're graduating uh, elementary school. <laughs> uh, but I, I just want to also point out that, and you know, it's not totally uncommon for writers to walk off of things or creators or people to. But when you're a freelancer, you're essentially saying, "I choose not to eat." You know no, I, I don't mean? want to make money anymore. Exactly. Yeah. I would. I would rather leave this than to make money off of this. Like I, you know, and so that's. It's a serious thing. It's a lot different than I think. You just quitting your job. Yeah. And uh, we have a. Uh, this was supposed to only be one-off issues. The Scarlet Spiders, yeah. Yeah, the, the Scarlet Spider series. Sales and marketing requested four issues of each title, much like the Age of Apocalypse, where uh-huh. we got four issues of uh, each new X book. They were able to compromise, and they brought them down to two apiece. But that, I mean, so, that, uh, so four issues would have extended this f- four more four months, months, right? So yeah. it's like you really don't get, you don't care about wrapping this up at all, do you? No, they just wanted uh, they just wanted that that speculated dime, whatever whatever was left. Yep. Um, now uh, Ben Riley would ultimately become the the real deal Spider-Man in Sensational Spider-Man number zero. The Sensational Spider-Man would replace Web. Okay. So Web of Spider-Man is no more. It is now Sensational Spider-Man. This is a January 1996, written and penciled by Dan Jurgens. And it comes with a terrible holographic cover. Oh, yeah. One of my least, most least favorite ever. Uh, There was tremendous fan backlash against Ben Riley, but perhaps more importantly was that much of the staff didn't like the character or the character change from Peter to Ben. Dan Jurgens, the guy writing him, wanted to be writing Peter Parker, so he appealed to Spider-Man editor Bob Budiansky, and Bob bought it. Spider-Man, The Final Adventure, 1 through 4, which was December 95 to March 96, cover date written by Fabian Nicienza, penciled by Derek Robinson, was intended to end with the birth of Peter and Mary Jane's baby, but Budiansky realized it wouldn't do to bring the character back as a father. Instead, the story was changed midway so that Peter temporarily lost his powers, but in such a way that it was easy to reverse. This was also served to play off the clone degeneration that clone Peter should have been experiencing, but wasn't. Clearly, uh, the prospect of bringing Peter Parker back from self-exile without making it seem like a cop-out was a daunting one. So Bob Budiansky put it out to everyone: creators, editors, Marvel office staff, for ideas. 
Glenn, Green, Glenn Greenberg said, think even the janitor and the mailroom guys waited at one point. It got a little out of hand, to put it mildly. The memos really started coming in at this point, fast and furious, and I've got every single one of them in one big, thick, hernia-inducing file. God, and I imagine part, seeing that? Well, part of me <laughs> wants to see it, part of me doesn't want to see it, you know what I mean? Because it's probably some of the stupidest, you know what I mean? Oh, I'm sure. Uh, it was all a dream, you know? Spider-Man <laughs> walks out of the shower. Uh <laughs> To provoke no interest from the readers, the storyline Return of Kane introduced a skeleton that was discovered in the original Clone Saga lab wearing a Spider-Man suit. However, none of the writers or editorial staff had a theory of what the skeleton's significance was. Yeah, I think this was going to be the uh, the one in the smokestack, right? Is it, I mean, isn't this so funny, though? Let's just put a skeleton there and figure it out later. Like, what? Because what? I, I think, like, uh, there was a story that they were they were going through all the uh, the potential ways to do this. And Kurt Busiek said, well, what about the body in the smokestack? Wow. So then we have this. Um, now... In July 1995, Tom Brevoort proposed a story in which Ben Riley is sent five years back in time to the end of the original Clone Saga by the Scryer as part of a contest between himself and Judas Traveler. Ugh. In this proposal, the Scryer would, would have been revealed as Mephisto, who is, you know, Marvel's Satan. Basically. And uh, he would play into Spider-Man lore a little bit later on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the scryer would uh, would appear at the end of the time loop and give Ben the option of saving Peter's life in place of his own. Now, this would mean that Ben was never a clone at all, but Peter, five years into the future, tricked by Mephisto to believe he was a clone and therefore take up the mantle of Ben Riley. You still with us? Yeah. I mean, if you have a headache, that's normal. <laughs> Don't worry. Pop a couple of aspirin and yes. continue. <laughs> now, this way, uh, Peter Parker would have Ben Riley's memories, which was preferable and quite simplified somehow. Mm -hmm. um, Budiansky and uh, Greenberg flushed out the storyline with plans for publication in April 1996. Spider-Man writers unanimously refused to adopt this time loop storyline and no alternative idea passed editorial approval. This put, this put Spider-Man in a kind of an open state with plot points going unresolved for too many issues despite agreement between creative and editorial that it was time to maybe put this one to bed. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we have a, a quote here from Glenn Greenberg. He says, Budiansky was mired in indecision, and it was hurting the entire line. No kidding. Uh, Dan Jurgens wrote a memo proposing that the saga end with Ben being revealed as a clone and dying in a climactic act of heroism, while Mary Jane has a miscarriage and separates from Peter. So it would, it would simplify everything. Um, he concluded the memo with, This proposal has holes, but I believe it serves as a general framework we can all work with to fill in as needed. This is my last shot. After this, I give up. And that would be he, very prophetic. Yes, and, and you know, he was also he was writing Superman at the time still, so Oh wow, yeah. So. He had a he had another gig. Yeah, one that was probably a little less uh, crazy than this one, maybe. I don't know. When, maybe that's another When they story. brought him and when they brought him in, I remember the house ads was like, this is the guy who killed Superman. Imagine what he's going to do with Spider-Man. Yeah. And too bad it, it kind of went the way it did. He tried to, but he had, he had trouble. Uh, in November 1995, a story outlined drafted by Dan and Bob Budiansky entitled Blood Brothers was distributed to the Spider-Man staff. It fairly well followed Jurgen's memo, uh, the run he sent originally, adding Harry Osborn as the mastermind behind everything. Now, after declaring bankruptcy and downsizing, Marvel's multiple editors-in-chief model was collapsed into one editor-in-chief, Bob Harris. 
He didn't like the Harry Osborne part and had the end of the story delayed six months to avoid competition with the X-Men crossover event onslaught. At this point, it's like there's no coming back. You know, you you almost wish they would just say, cut it off. We're just, you know, (laughs) issue issue number one of, you know, (laughs) freak out Spider-Man is going to come up next month. (laughs) Uh, This caused Dan Jurgens to quit in frustration at, at the delay for the most part. Now, fearing that Norman Osborn might be resurrected to take on this role, that's Harry's dad, the original mm-hmm. Green Goblin, Bob Budiansky wrote a memo forbidding it. Norman's death should never be undone, in my opinion. It's too classic. Let him rest in peace. But after another round of downsizing, Bob Budiansky was also fired. See ya, Bob. Bob Harris replaced Budiansky with editor Ralph Macchio. No, not that one from The Karate Kid, which actually <laughs> was a question I got this week from somebody, whether it was the same guy, and it's not. No. And Macchio uh, informed the creative staff that Norman Osborn would indeed be behind all of this cloning, which should be a surprise to no one at this point. Yes. Glenn, Glenn Greenberg said the reaction was not enthusiastic. I don't think anyone, from the writers to the editors to the assistant editors, agreed with Harris's idea, although his rationale certainly made sense to a certain extent. Harris felt that if there was only one person who could have had the money, the resources, the connections, the knowledge, and the motivation to orchestrate the clone saga and disrupt Peter Parker's life to such profound extent. The whole thing was finally put to bed in Spider-Man number 75, December 1996 cover. Written by Howard Mackey, penciled by John Romita Jr. Norman dies from his own pumpkin bombs at the end of this. Quote, unquote, dies. <laughs> I was going to say, he gets better pretty quick. He does, yeah. I, I actually kind of like the idea of Harry Osborn being the one behind it, because uh, he had a thing with Peter where he was always playing gotcha with him. Yeah. Like, there was even, like, post-death, like, something would, you know, there'd be a box, be like, gotcha, you know, gotcha. He was always trying to screw with him. I, I gotta say, I, in this case, I actually disagree with Budiansky because I think he was looking at it, like, how profound that, you know, death of Gwen Stacy yeah. and then the retribution, which was immediate, the same issue, Green Goblin dies by his own, yep. whatever it is that... His own hover, hey, glider. Hover, a glider thing. Yeah. Uh, and that was, I think that was very, pro- and it worked for a lot of people because it was like an, imme- re- an immediate repudiation for something that was so profound. But this yeah. was, you know, 30 or 20 years later, and uh, I don't think it had the same impact. And I, I think yeah. bringing him back wasn't a horrible idea. That being no. said, it was sort of, uh, you know, the way it was done was a little underhanded maybe, or I don't know, it seemed a little little shifty to just basically excise all the people that, would have uh, hated it and then be like, hey, now it's fine. We got Ralph Macchio here. Yeah, we, we got this in the bag. Yeah. Uh, now, a one-shot called Spider-Man The Osborne Journal, which came out in February 1997, written by Glenn Greenberg, penciled by Kyle Hotz, that tells the clone saga from Norman's perspective. Um, also, it does its best to tie up some of the crazier loose ends, if you can imagine there being a list of such a thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tom DeFalco had a plan all along. He says, our plan was to structure the clone saga like a three-act play. Act one would climax at or around Amazing number 400, when it was revealed that Pete was the clone and Ben was the real guy. Act two would last around three months. Three months! Wow. And follow Ben's adventures. In act three... Peter would triumphantly return as the one true Spider-Man. Mark and I were Mark and I Mark and I was hoping that the Spider Crew <laughs> could make Ben a viable character during his turn in the spotlight, and we planned to start Ben in his own monthly title after Peter returned. It was kind of like what I had already done with Thor and Thunderstrike, two very different titles based on a single concept. Of course, our plan went into the trash the day I got fired. 
Wow. So I mean, that was supposed to. It was supposed to still be a pretty long event. Yeah. Uh, but not not as long as it ended up being. <laughs> Absolutely not. And, and I'm, I'm, I hope he's happy now that Ben Riley is finally getting his ongoing title uh, in a few months. Oh yeah. And <laughs> but uh, I remember reading a quote on the uh, Life of Riley where DeFalco says that uh, Thunderstrike was selling more than Thor and the Avengers or something like that. Really? And uh, I yeah, I, I I don't think that was quite the case. But if uh, he says so, <laughs> what are you gonna do? Uh, now, Spider-Man editor Mark Bernardo says the length of the story arc was initially planned to be short, but rapidly spun out of control and ended as a fiasco. Ironically, the whole storyline, which was supposed to simplify Spider-Man's <laughs> mythos and ultimately bring him quote unquote back to basics, ended up complicating everything beyond what anyone imagined. Funny how that uh, happens and keeps happening over and over again in <laughs> comics. Isn't that funny? Yes. Now, uh, Marvel would actually parody its own story with a with a one-shot called Spider-Man, 101 Ways to End the Clone Saga. And that came out in January 1997. And I think that was a... Uh, it was a thing where, like, the it was basically starred the editors. Oh, really? And I think, like, Tom Brevoort was in there because I remember some guy with a hat. Um, I think that's his gimmick. <laughs> so has got to uh, be, yep. Yeah. Hat and but, uh, beard. Yeah, um, and there's currently a clone conspiracy happening in Spider-Man right now. Can't claim to know anything about it. We've heard things. Um, maybe you'd like to tell us about it. Yeah, and uh, try to be brief if you can, but if you do want to tell us about the clone conspiracy currently happening or you want to talk about the clone saga, tell us what you thought of the episode, or if you'd like to pick... Future issues for us to read on Cosmic Treadmill, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can read our writings almost every week on uh, weirdsciencedccomics.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And every single day, you should go and read Chris's personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearths.blogspot.com. He does a DC comic every single day. Um, don't really know what you've been up to this week. I've, oh, you did... Uh, the uh, Batman Year Two, right? With the Year Two, yeah. With the Reaper, and uh, yeah, I, I like that story a lot. One issue is by McFarlane, I believe. Three of them. Oh, all three of them. So there you go. This, um, yeah, the first issue is Alan Davis. The last three are McFarlane. Okay, so that, that I had it backwards. I thought it was one. Well, I thought it was one in three, yeah. but it's the other way around. Uh, a good story, and as I think I commented on Twitter, though, should not have been called Year Two. That's that Absolutely. is. If, yeah. if if you just took it as face value as a story, uh, it's pretty good. I mean, I wouldn't say it's the best, but it's all right. Anyway, yeah. whatever's on there, you should go check it out. Great writing, great uh, commentary, right. and always some advertisements, which I mm-hmm. is what originally pulled me into that. But I think this is the most justice we can do on the Clone Saga, given. Uh, the fact that we haven't taken the university course and uh, yeah. <laughs> the, pod- the podcast isn't actually 15 hours long. Yes. Uh, do you think you have anything else for him, Chris? Mm, no. No, I think we're pretty <laughs> spent after that. So until next time, folks, I'd like you to keep it on the treadmill editorially. See you. Isn't it